3: What's that, Will? So I can't remember if we've talked about this on the show before, but but you know what the Wicked Bible is, right?
4: Definitely. It's the Bible with that printing error that says, uh, thou
3: shalt commit adultery instead of uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yeah, that one word. There's a slight difference in the meaning there, <laughs> but uh, I've always wanted to see one of these. And there are actually only a few left in the world right now. And it it took about a year for people to realize the error. But when King Charles the first caught on, he was livid. He decided to fine the printers something like 300 pounds. He had their printing licenses revoked and basically shamed them out of their positions. And of course, the book was immediately banned. There was this massive bonfire to collect and burn every copy of these so-called wicked Bibles. But somehow, I think 10 or 11 copies managed to get through, and they're, of course, insanely valuable now. And actually, there's one other thing I didn't realize about the book, that the adultery mistake wasn't the only error in the book. Oh, yeah? Well, what else was wrong with it? According to the Washington Post in Deuteronomy five twenty four, it's supposed to say, Behold, the Lord hath showed us his glory and his greatness. But instead it says, Behold, our Lord hath showed us his glory and his great arse. <laughs> I mean, that does seem problematic. <laughs> and just like a little bit different than what it actually says, but it points to a bigger theory. So biblical scholars used to think the Wicked Bible got its name because of one unfortunate printing error. But with this second mistake, it actually brings up the idea of sabotage. And there's all these great conspiracy theories about who could have caused it and who wanted to get these royal printers in trouble, and it, it makes the Wicked story even more fun. So today's episode is about all the stories of banned books, You know, from political exposés to Ulysses. To where's Waldo and how it got banned from prisons. So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hotiketer, And sitting on the other side of that soundproof glass, proudly displaying his first edition Captain Underpants book. That's our (laughs) pal and producer, Tristan McNeil.
4: So, I mean, I know it's a cute gag from Tristan showing off how many Captain Underpants books he has, but did you realize that in 2012, Captain Underpants was actually the number one banned book in America? No, really? Yeah, apparently the ALA, or the American Library Association, releases this annual list of the titles that were most challenged or banned at libraries and schools. And um, that year, Captain Underpants actually beat out Fifty Shades of Grey for the title, as well as books like uh, Thirteen Reasons Why, which, you know, some say glorifies suicide. It also beat out classics like Brave New World and To Kill a Mockingbird. That said, I I, I do have to say the book does come with a warning on it that warns readers and parents of readers from the outset. It's a Sturgeon General's warning, and it reads, some material in this book might be considered offensive by those who don't wear underwear.
3: (laughs) That's a helpful warning. I mean, you, you can see how the word underpants might set off some alarm bells for parents, and... It seems like it's going to be this rude book instead of actually a very sweet one. But, you know, on the other hand, the word underpants is exactly why kids get excited to
4: read the book. I I mean, the only movie my parents banned me from watching was Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I know you know, (laughs) but I still think is weird. And obviously it's because my dad went to college at like 13 or something and then failed out because he was working on this underground newspaper and playing in a Rolling Stones cover band and entering jitterbug contests apparently but basically basically, he was doing everything uh except going to school but my mom didn't want me to get any ideas from the movie so did you ever actually get to
3: see Ferris Bueller's Day Off?
4: Yeah, I saw it like the weekend after it came out on VHS at my uncle's house. You know, it immediately
3: became my favorite movie. Yeah, and it is a great movie, so I'm glad you finally got to see it. <laughs> and, and I like that we've already talked a little bit about Captain Underpants, one of my kids' favorites, of course, when they first discover it. But let me read you a few other children's books that have been banned that that actually kind of surprised me. And I'm going to kick it off with Winnie the Pooh, which oddly has been banned in a lot of countries. So, is this because of Piglet? Because I I know Miss Piggy
4: was banned in Saudi Arabia for, I guess, for just being a pig. Um, But actually, you know, before I let you go, uh, I've got this tangent about pigs. Did you see that Peppa Pig was banned
3: in China? Which is just so sad, but I did see this. This was just last week, right? Uh But I I didn't actually see why it was banned.
4: So, uh, apparently the cartoon character has been associated with, like, laziness and slackers and also gangsters for some reason. Like, people who were getting Peppa Pig (laughs) tattoos, which... Makes no sense. But the, the, the country is instead asking its citizens to tune into the government-created alternative. It's called Little Pig Dodo. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but I cut you off. So tell me a little bit more about Winnie the Pooh. Well, you were right with one of the guesses, and that, that's that some Muslim nations have banned the book because of Piglet. But, you know, according to the book's enthusiast site Bookster, it has this long history of being banned. And when Winnie the Pooh first came out, some American and Polish leaders were outraged because talking animals can, I guess, be seen as an insult to God. But the more interesting thing, and and something I hadn't thought about, was that the books are often banned in communist countries. And that's for a different reason. It's because the animals are seen as representing the seven deadly sins. So if you think about it, Pooh is a glutton, Owl is too proud— I guess you've got Piglet, who's envious, and Eeyore is, of course, slothful. Rabbit gets a little too angry or wrathful, and who does that leave? I guess that leaves us with Tigger, who is, I don't know, bouncy. Is that one of the (laughs) Seven Deadly sins? I can't remember them all. But the books are read as trying to inspire religion, which is, of course, problematic in communist nations. So, I mean, that makes sense, but what are some of the other surprises you found? All right. Well, let's see the other ones I have on the list. Here, You got Ferdinand the Bull that was banned for being too pacifist and Gandhi and Franklin Roosevelt loved it. And of course, Hitler called it degenerate democratic propaganda. (laughs)
4: <laughs> I mean, I feel like those quotes should be on the book jacket, right? Like, if it's not part of Hitler's Children's Book Club, that feels like it's a good thing. <laughs> but,
3: uh, <laughs> but what else do I like that you idea have? of Hitler's Children's Book Club. <laughs> All right, well, the one that surprised me the most, and you'll remember this from reading it to your kids as like babies even, is Brown Bear, Brown Bear. You remember this book, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, th- this was a rare case where a book was banned by accident.
4: Yeah, I mean, I was about to say it's hard to imagine it being
3: banned for introducing colors and in animals to kids. Well, the story is that someone on the State Board of Education in Texas was doing their research and Googled the author's name. His name is Bill Martin and confused him with a different Bill Martin who'd written a book called Ethical Marxism. So (laughs) that's why, yeah, there's not quite the juicy story behind it. I was hoping they had been offended for some ridiculous reason. But there are just so many interesting ones on this list. Also, one of our favorite authors or kids' authors, Shel Silverstein, uh, his book A Light in the Attic was banned in Wisconsin.
4: So this is confusing to me because, I I mean, it would make sense to me if The Giving Tree was banned because, you know, the hero of that book is so
3: selfish, but... A light in the attic's just so good. Oh, no kidding. And, and and I, you'll remember this poem when you hear it, but this is the offending poem, and and you can decide for yourself. It's called How Not to Have to Dry the Dishes. <laughs> it goes like this. If you have to dry the dishes, such an awful, boring chore. If you have to dry the dishes instead of going to the store. If you have to dry the dishes and you drop one on the floor, maybe they won't let you dry the dishes anymore. So basically, you know, parents were worried about kids breaking their china, I guess, or having kids manipulate their way out of chores or something. It's just so weird that this was banned for that.
4: I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Like, don't we want mischievous kids? Like, not too mischievous, (laughs) but you want a little zaniness and creativity and the kind of kid who laughs at poems like that. Also, I I do think if you're going to take things so literally, shouldn't we be stopping kids from fables about, like, mice taking thorns out of lion's paws because you really shouldn't be touching lion's paws? Or uh, or from, like, (laughs) watching things like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids because shrinking your kids isn't great parenting?
3: You're right. It's really not a good idea (laughs) if you're a parent. I'm glad that we've learned that now that we're both parents. (laughs) But it feels like, you know, when you look at the breakdown of the types of books that have been banned, especially kids' books that have been banned – you can break them down in a couple of ways some of the bands are about the type of kid that you want to raise obviously a good communist who's banning winnie the pooh is trying to protect future generations from what they see as the shackles of religion i guess and it's the same with shell silverstein or captain underpants and you know whether right or wrong there are parents who want to raise a certain kind of good kid who's never exposed to any rude ideas But then there's another type of book that gets banned, and that's a little bit more about these difficult conversations. So how do you mean? Well, there was this interesting article in The Atlantic, and it was written by Paul Ringel, who's a history professor. And this is from back in 2016, but he was saying that about 52% of books that were banned or challenged in the 10 years prior to 2016 were what you'd label as diverse content. Now, these are books like The Hate You Give or Wonder, which you know, about race or religion or gender, sexual orientation, many cases, even disabilities. But, you know, he points out that this isn't a new issue. Parents have always been wary of having difficult conversations with their kids. In the 1800s, there was this magazine called Juvenile Miscellany, which I guess was kind of like the highlights of the cricket magazine of its time. And it was filled with stories for children. And it was distributed mostly in New England. But you know, then started running these anti-slavery stories, which really worked to humanize the slaves. And this was in the 1830s. And immediately the readership dropped. Then the magazine folded about a year or so after that, I think. And as he puts it, quote, the outcome had a chilling effect on other publications. Everyone was scared of talking about issues of slavery, even though this audience is actually in the Northeast. But his point was that the publishers have always had this divide. You know, do you write to please your kid readers while encouraging them to think about the larger world, or do you please the parent and stay in this comfortable, safe zone? And in the case of something like Shel Silverstein, isn't having a conversation about how to read, you know, that you don't just trust something because it's in print. It, it seems like that's a good conversation to have pretty early in a kid's life.
4: Yeah, it's a good question, and I'd actually heard a similar argument that the reason it took so long for books like uh, Corduroy or Ezra Jack's Keith's Snowy Day to break the color barrier in children's books with African-American heroes was that publishers had actually been hesitant to publish anything that made parents feel uncomfortable, but
3: during the era of civil rights, those worries were breaking down. Yeah, and actually, while we're talking about race, let's take a second to talk about Huck Finn, which, of course— You know, we've known has been on the banned books list over the years. And it's funny how this book caused controversy from the very beginning. And for very different reasons. At first, Mark Twain's classic was banned for being too progressive and humanizing slaves. And it was also banned for having low-class language. In Concord, Massachusetts, librarians called it trash and said it was suitable only for the slums. Then people in Missouri thought it showed them as backwards talking as well. And then you know, you fast forward later in the 50s, the NAACP raised the issue of how many times racial slurs are used in the book, and eventually it got banned for being racist.
4: So I loved The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I I think when I read it, I was just so taken with this idea of, um, I don't know, like an unreliable and mischievous storyteller and who just pulls you through an adventure. And it was just so funny and unpretentious to me, and totally different from everything else I'd read. But... I just saw this thing in uh, GQ. They, they put out a list of 21 books you don't have to read, and it's kind of a read this, not that for classic literature. And Katie Weaver, who we love from our Mental Floss days and is one of my favorite writers, she, she made a really smart point. She writes, quote, "'The worst crime committed by The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is that it makes first-time Twain readers think that Twain wrote tedious, meandering stories. He did, as is evidenced by this, his book of tedious, meandering stories.' But he also wrote a lot of richly entertaining, meandering stories that are not constrained by the ham-fisted narration of a fictional backcountry child or suffused with his sweaty imitation of a slave talking. Alternatively, read Frederick 1st firsthand account of slavery, which is equal parts shocking and heartbreaking. While Jim, the affable slave friend of Huck Finn, exclaims things like, Lawsy, I's mighty glad, Frederick Douglass makes observations like, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. I mean, I, I condensed her writing some, and she goes on to talk about how amazing the plot of Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass is, but uh, it's a smart point that we too often tell this like slave-with-a-smile type story to kids, and our cultural reference point for a slave who's escaped is Jim from Huck Finn instead of this unbelievably eloquent and really powerful Frederick Douglass.
3: Yeah, it's a great point. And I do love Katie's writing. That's a, that's a really, really powerful quote from that. But I actually want to talk about an equally important book and one that might be seen as as powerful. And that, not surprisingly, Mango, it's Where's Waldo? So, <laughs> But before we chat about why you can't read it in prisons, let's take a quick break.
0: A new season of Bridgerton is here.
1: Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
1: My best hopes...
4: Welcome back to Part-Time Genius, where we're talking banned books, and specifically, Where's Waldo? Now, Will, I, I do have to confess, one of my favorite little stories from our friend Jake Rosen is on the Where's Waldo topless beach scandal, and every <laughs> time I see a Where's Waldo book, I think about that,
3: but I don't think this is what you were talking about when you said Waldo was banned at prisons. No, the, the, the Waldo that got banned at prisons was Where's Waldo Santa Spectacular, but Tell me, what is this topless scandal?
4: (laughs) It's really salacious. So uh, apparently it started when some kid in East Hampton, New York, got a Waldo book out of the library and found that one of the tiny women in this big beach scene was topless. She's uh, sunbathing on her stomach and lying on top of her top. And this kid with an ice cream cone kind of touches the cone to her back.
3: So in the pic, she's captured arching her back up in shock. Yeah, I can see why parents might have been a little concerned by this. But I'm I'm curious to know, uh, how much breast is little Johnny seeing here?
4: (laughs) Well, from my initial reading, I thought it was just a little side boob. But apparently there's definitely some nipple in there as well. And according to Jake's reporting, the kid was quoted as, quote, being disgusted. And upon finding not Waldo, he kind of immediately ran to tell his mom. but. Not before showing it to his younger brother first. But anyway, the the mom got the book banned from American libraries and bookstores, which is reasonable, I guess. But uh, I, I'd forgotten this. The books are actually from Europe. Oh, that's right. He's, he's uh, what's he called there? It's, it's Where's Wally, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. And, you know, nudity and topless sunbathing isn't exactly controversial there. So while Where's Waldo was on the top of this 100 banned books list throughout the 90s, right next to Howard Stern's private parts, Where's Wally actually got to keep hanging out with the topless woman on a beach? And, of course, it wasn't long before she covered up for American audiences. But tell me about the
3: Santa spectacular, because I'm super curious. Well, I'm glad you took us on that uh, on that tangent. I never thought the word side boob would be said on part-time genius, but we managed <laughs> to, to pull that off. But when you talk about this one, actually, the ban in Texas prisons was based less about a war on Santa, and it was more about the fact that the book came with stickers. Apparently, stickers are banned in prison for a number of reasons— First, you can, you can make band-aids with them, which is a problem because jails want to know about injuries, both major and minor, that are going on there. And also, stickers are an easy way to cover up a camera or a glass, and that might keep the guards from looking at you. So it makes sense for the prison to ban them. But the author was partially pointing out the absurdity of the fact that books like Mein Kampf and The Holy Book of Adolf Hitler, they're considered acceptable literature. While being seen with a copy of Where's Waldo's Santa Spectacular will land you in solitary. (laughs) I love that you could be a badass
4: in jail for just smuggling in a copy of Where's Waldo. And speaking of smuggling, uh, I, I know we wanted to talk about my favorite story of all time, How Ulysses by James Joyce Got to the U.S.
3: And this involves one of our favorite publishers, Bennett Cerf. That's right. So Bennett Cerf is the publisher who founded Random House. And we've talked about him a couple of times. He's, of course, the guy who bet Dr. Seuss that he couldn't write a book with less than 50 words. We've mentioned that before and that the book ended up being green eggs and ham. But actually, before we talk about this anymore, can I tell you my favorite Bennett Cerf fact? Definitely. So Bennett Cerf loved writers and he liked hanging out with them and talking to them about literature. And he actually liked making edits. He once pleaded with Ayn Rand to cut the John Galt speech, and I love her response to this. She said, would you cut the Bible? Which is just kind of like peak Ayn Rand. <laughs> but my favorite fact is that he loved Gertrude Stein, and he would publish her books just to kind of be in her orbit. And Surf enjoyed big personalities and challenging authors, and he even admitted in his introduction to her book, the book was called geographical history of america or the relation of human nature to the human mind it's quite a long title but this is how his intro to the book starts i must admit frankly i do not know what miss stein is talking about i do not even understand the title <laughs> <laughs> that's ridiculous well apparently she was fine with it and they had this relationship that was pretty playful and when he asked her to explain the line a rose as a rose is a rose she just responded Bennett, you're a very nice boy, but you're rather stupid. And I just always kind of was amused (laughs) by that quote. But let's talk about the ultimate band book, which is, of course, Ulysses. Definitely. So
4: this telling is based on a story I worked on at Mental Floss with my pal Lucas Adams, but I'm going to try to keep it as quick as I can. So, Surf, as you listeners have probably figured out by now, is this charismatic and savvy and really energized character, and he's trying to make a name for his new company, Random House. And Ulysses has been around for a while, but it had gained a reputation for being obscene. A Harvard professor at the time had claimed that the work showed that Joyce was, quote, "...in an advanced stage of psychic disintegration." And places like Quarterly Review talked about the book like it was trying to destroy Western civilization. And, of course, all of this baffled James Joyce, right? Like, he was a little irritated that he'd written this masterpiece and poured all his effort into this, and he just couldn't make any money off it. When it was being serialized in the U.S., the courts banned it on similar obscenity grounds. The the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice had actually set up this court case against it, and it made it so that just owning a copy of the book was this arrestable offense— I mean, this is crazy, right? For Joyce, it was just this book that he couldn't get anyone to take on. Anyway, in 1922, the famous indie bookstore in Paris called the Shakespeare Publishing Company starts publishing the book in this light blue cover. And to be seen with these books was kind of a thing for the literati. So if you wanted to read the book in the U.S., you'd have to go there or sneak a copy over. And it was kind of fun and illegal. But If the Postal Service got their hands on the book, they were under strict orders to burn it immediately. And you could actually get arrested for owning a copy if you really flaunted it. So it progresses like this for a while. And then about 10 years later in 1932, and this is when Cerf is really launching Random House. He's hanging out with this brilliant lawyer friend of his named Morris Ernst. And Ernst is talking about how disgusted he is with censorship and the censorship of this book in particular. And Cerf immediately hatches a plan he really smells opportunity for his little company. So he thinks, what if he can get Ernst to represent him in court? He'd pay the court fees, and if Ernst wins, he gets a cut of the royalties. So he proposes this to Ernst, and Ernst agrees, and now he just has to get James Joyce on board. So he writes this letter on why Joyce should take a chance on him, and of course, Joyce is delighted because he hasn't made a cent off this thing in England or in the U.S., and there's one little detail here that's just so funny to me. When Surf meets Joyce in Paris, Joyce shows up in a sling and foot and head bandages and also this eye patch over his left eye and Surf didn't know what was going on. He actually didn't realize that Joyce always wore the eye patch, but the rest of the injuries were fresh. And apparently when Joyce had heard the news about this masterpiece getting published or possibly published in America, he was so giddy that he accidentally walked right into traffic and got slammed by a taxi cab. (laughs) Anyway, he still somehow makes it to Paris where Cerf makes a deal with him. He's going to give him $1,500 and, you know, royalties, whether or not they win the court case. And Joyce is overjoyed. So Cerf has this ace lawyer and he has the blessing of the novelist. But here's where things get absolutely bonkers. So Surf now has to do the worst and most important smuggling job in the world. He and Ernst want to bring the book back to the U.S., but they need to be caught with it so that they can start a court case over it. And so this is unbelievably planned out, like the book world's Oceans 11. First, Surf and Ernst look for a favorable judge, someone with an artsy bent who, you know, might be in favor of the arts and would rule in favor of the arts. They need an intellectual, and they find it in this judge named John M. Wolseley. And then they have to locate the specific port to get caught at so that they can get that judge. So somehow they figured that out. But it turns out he's on vacation, so they actually have to delay till he's back, but then they don't just want to give him a book, right? They want to stack the deck a little. So they take a copy of this light blue book from Paris and they start pasting in as much critical praise in the book as possible inside the covers. They actually attach praise from Ezra Pound and Ford Maddox Ford and all these other giants of literature and critics who love the book. And as Surf put it, by the time we were finished, the covers were bulging. And now all they have to do is find a terrible smuggler and pay him to get caught with the book at customs, which sounds easy. But here's where it gets hilarious. So the smuggler has this book in his suitcase. He's getting off at the right port, but it's so hot. And there's so many people on this summer day at customs that uh, the officers are just waving people through. And this was not the plan. This guy had been paid explicitly to get caught. And if he goes through customs, his whole journey to Paris and back would have been for naught. So he starts making a fuss. He tells the inspector, I insist you open the bag and search it. And the officer is just like, it's too hot. And so the smuggler starts confessing. He says, there's something in there that's contraband, and I insist that it be searched. So they just keep bickering, and the the officer finally does it and finds this copy of Ulysses, and he sort of just shrugs him through. And then the smuggler says, I demand that you seize this book. And while the officer is telling him, look, it's 100 degrees in here, and I'm saying you can just go through, the smuggler is going on about what the officer's duties are and what the officer's duties are as an American official and laws and... Finally, he just keeps ranting for such a long time that the manager comes over. And of course, you know, the supervising official also just wants to get this over with. He wants the irritating passenger to go through, but uh, he keeps complaining. And finally, they realize this dude isn't going to stop. And then they impound the book.
3: And the case was pretty breezy, right?
4: Very. It took just two days. And, you know, this Judge Woolsley read the book and all the criticism. And then he actually consulted two of his friends who were also fans of literature and while he said the book wasn't easy to read or understand, he wrote, quote, Each word of the book contributes like a bit of a mosaic to the detail of the picture which Joyce is seeking to construct for his readers. He also called Ulysses a sincere and serious attempt to devise a new literary method for the observation and description of mankind. And, you know, in removing this ban on the book, Wolseley's point was that the average reader should be given access to books like Ulysses because it's only the normal person that the law is concerned with.
3: Which is pretty important, right? I mean, it's often the squeaky wheels on these extreme ends who get the judgments and the laws passed. But Woolsey was deciding for the, you know, I guess the the normal person.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how fast Surf also jumped on this decision. Like, he had the printing press ready to kick on 10 minutes after they got the verdict. And the case actually got appealed, but it won two to one in circuit court. And Joyce, for his part, was super excited. You know, the fact that this case won in America meant that the floodgates would open and he knew England wasn't going to be far behind. In fact, Cerf actually said that Joyce was so excited he thought he might emigrate to the U.S., but then it turned out he was too afraid to get on a boat to make the journey. And (laughs) as for the case itself, it actually ended up being this landmark judgment that was cited in future obscenity cases, including Tropic of Cancer.
3: Huh. I mean, that's funny because I read this New Yorker story about Walter Minton. He was the publisher at Putnam, and he was responsible for publishing Tropic of Cancer as well as Lolita and quite a few other important books. And when he was about to publish Norman Mailer, Bennett Cerf actually called him up and warned him not to publish the books because he was afraid the censors would come down on everybody as a result. And of course, Minton, who was in the same mold as Cerf, actually took out an ad for the book that said... The book six publishers refuse to bring you. It's kind of funny how cyclical this stuff is. But anyway, we've got a few more stories to get through. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. A new
0: season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the tonne.
1: Listen to Season 2 of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but...
2: Same old Oh, yeah.
3: Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. So, Mango, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is how when you ban a book, you actually just give it so much more attention.
4: Yeah, we, we did this story a while back on this book. Uh, it was called The Minute Book of the General Counsel of the International Working Men's Association. And, you know, that's a long title, but it was actually supposedly seen as this foundational document of Karl Marx and his group. It ended up somehow getting locked up in this British library. It was protected by this very strict British librarian for years, and people just kept obsessing over how important this book was, and they couldn't get their hands on it. And, you know, they thought it would actually show you how to start revolutions and how to turn capitalists into socialists. And instead, when it was finally revealed to the public what was in it, it just ended up being this, like, little balance book of accounts. It was a ledger for the club, essentially, and it was (laughs) totally anticlimactic. But when the USSR finally published it, you know, no one paid attention to it.
3: I mean, it's interesting to hear what's been happening in Hong Kong. I don't know if you heard this episode about this from, from The Daily, one of our, our favorite podcasts. I mean, I love The Daily, but I actually haven't heard this one. Well, there's this publisher there that had been publishing books on the sex lives and CD gossip about ministers, and it was all nonfiction, I believe. And he had some cover by Operating from Hong Kong, which has, of course, been part of China since 1997. But it has that British legacy there. But just like Surf, he'd figured out which ports were important, though he was actually smuggling and was getting like 90% of the books through. But when he published a book about the president's extramarital affairs, he and his colleagues were kidnapped in the mainland for months, I think it was. And it's a crazy story. And eventually he gets out and starts operating again from Taiwan. But it's just so good. And it's also an amazing reminder of how good we have it here. But... Anyway, before we close out the show, I wanted to tell you one quick story about Judy Bloom. So, I mean, Judy Bloom's my
4: favorite. Like, I I actually just got my son hooked on the Superfudge series partially because he was missing (laughs) New York City and those books actually talk a lot about the city and moving and also what it's like to have a ridiculous and irritating younger sibling. But are you going to talk about Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret?
3: Well, that's definitely part of it. So, So Judy Bloom's had a few books that have been banned, but That's probably her most famous because it talks about puberty and getting your period. And, you know, I read this story in The Times where she talked about why she thought the book was banned. And she said, quote, I think the feeling was if my child doesn't read this, my child won't know about it. And it's not going to happen to my child. And I used to get up there on stage and say, I have news for you. Your kids are going through puberty, whether you like it or not. So why not help them? It's going to happen whether they read my books or no books or someone else's books. Oh, man, I love that. Again, it does go back to that difficult conversation, those things you try to avoid with your kids. Yeah, but the funniest part is that when people come to visit the bookstore she founded in Key West, that's called Books and Books, she takes great pleasure in pushing banned books onto them. As she told the Times, It's my new thrill as a bookseller to put that right book into the hands of someone who appreciates what it's saying which is what she said after she'd sold a couple of book about two male penguins who hatch and raise a baby bird together. And it's called And Tango Makes Three.
4: <laughs> I like that she's still out there fighting for banned books. What a superhero. Well, uh, <laughs> why don't we end on that note? But before we go, let's get in a fact off. And instead of just doing it on banned books, how about we open it up to all band things? All right, let's do it.
3: Well, I think we all remember that George H.W. Bush hated broccoli. But what I'd forgotten was the statement he made about banning broccoli from being served on Air Force One. And here's what it said. I don't like broccoli, and I haven't liked it since I was a little kid and my mother made me eat it. And I'm president of the United States, and I'm not going to eat broccoli anymore. <laughs> also, apparently he just used to shovel down junk food. I saw this in the Times, but they described the food he ate as everything that, quote, Can be procured at baseball games, fast food joints, or 7-Eleven. Beef jerky, nachos, tacos, chili, refried beans, hamburgers, hot dogs, barbecue ribs, candy, popcorn, ice cream, and cake. Actually, that makes me hungry just reading that (laughs) quote. But when Peggy Noonan saw him eat, she described it like an embarrassed teenage boy. And on the few occasions he tried to eat something healthy like yogurt, he'd, quote, spice it up with butterfingers.
4: <laughs> That's pretty amazing. And I, I had no idea he was such a poor eater slash also my eating soulmate. But uh, right, exactly. I actually remember when he said that thing about broccoli. And I feel like his poll numbers in my fourth grade class just shot up immediately. So <laughs> here, here's one about Beavis and Butthead. Uh, basically, they got banned early in the show from shouting fire because people thought the cartoon was leading to arson cases. So to avoid the censors, they would shout words like
3: fryer instead. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's so ridiculous. All right. Well, according to The New Yorker, China has a ban on time travel in books and movies because it, quote, disrespects history. Also, if you're in Beijing, you should be aware there's a height limit on dogs. So keep your pets under 14 inches. Also, if you don't have permission from China's government... You can't reincarnate there, Mango. Just keep that in mind. (laughs) Got it. So no
4: hot tub time machine, no traveling with a Great Dane, and no reincarnation. I I actually feel it's like the hot tub time machine part that's the hardest for me. So here's one I like. When the Soviet Union was still a thing, comedians had to run all their jokes by the Department of Jokes. It was actually called the Humor Department of the Censorship Apparatus of the Soviet Ministry of Culture. And they would cut any joke you said about politics, religion, or sex which meant that most routines were based on animal jokes. (laughs) I just love the idea that if you're really trying to carve out like a career as a comedian, you'd have to have like a tight five on hamsters.
3: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, here's something else that I had forgotten. The NCAA at one point banned the slam dunk basically because they wanted to keep one player from scoring. It was actually called the Lou Alcindor rule, and it was introduced just to keep Kareem Abdul-Jabbar from scoring. There's an article in Cracked about this, and as, as they put it, NCAA officials claimed that they were simply banning a non skillful shot, while Kareem saw it as a racist attempt to stop black people from invading the game. And as Cracked rightly points out, that might sound far-fetched until you remember that this was a mere three years after the Civil Rights Act. Oh, man, that's interesting. And, you know, I can't beat a Kareem
4: fact. I, I, I think you have to take home today's trophy.
3: I think we probably all understand that. You really cannot beat a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar fact. So uh, <laughs> thanks so much. I, I kind of knew that was going to be my winner today. But I'm sure there are plenty of great facts about banned books or anything that was banned in general. And we would love to hear those from you. As always, you can email us part genius at howstuffworks.com or call us on our 24-7-FACT hotline, one pt genius We also love to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter, but thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand.
4: Kristen McNeil does the editing thing.
3: Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing.
4: <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec-producer thing.
3: Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the Research Army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams.
4: And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves!
3: If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us.
4: Did we? Did we forget Jason? Jason who?